Hello. You should have seen Scotty's face. <laughs> I was I was definitely surprised. <laughs> it was. Hello, everybody. My name is Amelia Amporo, and this is the Weirdest Thing Podcast. Yes, and I am uh, your other co-host, Scotty Milder, and uh, happy Pride, everybody. Happy Pride, everybody. Um, we hope that you're getting to uh, celebrate some good times. I hope everybody is out there having some safe, sexy fun. Mm-hmm. And I hope uh, if you live in a state where there is some stupid shit going on around queer people right now, you know, I hope I hope stuff gets gets better for y'all soon. I'm not going to yeah. be like, I hope you can move because some people yeah. don't want to move. They just right. want to not be persecuted so they just want anyways, their basic rights they know. just you know listen <laughs> basic human rights not yeah. too much to ask really for anybody and if you're somebody who is grumpy about people celebrating pride um i mean if you're grumpy about that then like go to another podcast yeah turn off this podcast <laughs> like you're not gonna have any use for us and we really don't have any use for you so yeah <laughs> we don't know we, I, we don't know how you got here right uh, just just show yourself out and uh yeah. we'll just all move on with our lives yeah go listen to i don't know joe rogan or <laughs> i don't know any of the countless white dudes who are out there i mean ted cruz has a podcast so amazing scotty how are you doing I'm doing pretty good. Been busy. So as everyone knows, I started another podcast and uh, that's been a lot of fun. It's been uh, a little more work than I probably expected it to be, but (laughs) um, that was probably predictable, but it's been good. And I've been having a fun time with that. So amazing. And uh, shout out to your new editing spot, which is Sidetrack Brewing here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, yeah sidetrack. If you guys want to like come on and uh, sponsor us, I'd be you know very pleased. Super cool. I, I discovered that the editing process is way more fun if I go to a brew pub and drink beer while I do it. So beautiful, and that's what we if, like. And it gets like messier over the next few weeks. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's probably why. <laughs> so we turn Scotty into an alcoholic. <laughs> Ooh. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so it is Pride Month. This is, it um, is. what is today's date? The 7th of June. Um, hey, question for you. And if mm-hmm. you if you do know the answer, don't blurt it out. Just say yes or no, whether you know the answer. Okay. Do you know why Pride is celebrated in June? I do not. Okay. I feel like I used to know that, then, but maybe not. Okay. Because I had seen some people being like, why do we celebrate Pride in June? It's so hot. And I was like. Uh. That's a good question. No, it, I mean, I knew the answer. <laughs> and that's why I was a little like, do you not? But then I was like, maybe everybody doesn't. So that was part of my I just mean, what informal. Is, what poll. is the answer? It's because Stonewall happened in June. Oh, yeah. No. Okay. Of course. Yeah. That yeah. And so the first pride was like a cel- like a celebration, a remembrance yeah. of Stonewall. And then. Okay. I mean, I just figured summertime, you know, it's nice weather and mm-hmm. got to pick a month. So I never really made that connection. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. That. Yeah. That makes sense. So, and that's the episode. All right, everybody. Stay weird, stick your. Just kidding. Bye. <laughs>
Well, so in honor of Pride Month, I think we both have some, if not directly Pride themed stories, tangentially Pride themed stories. Yeah, um, some some queer stories. Some queer stories. Yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and say this right now. This wasn't the plan, but I'm going to turn mine into a two-parter. Oh, first time in Weirdest Thing podcast history. Yeah, because it's just, it's it's a bit, there's just... There's a lot to this story, and I didn't want to do it all today. (laughs) Is it funny that this is the story that we are breaking the seal on for that? (laughs) Out of all of the things that we've been like, we couldn't go into it, there's too much. I mean, I probably should have done that with like the death metal murders, because that was like an 18 million hour episode. (laughs) But like, yeah, no, this one, I was just like, okay. I'm halfway, I was doing the research. Well, I I did like three quarters of the research and I was like, okay, the halfway point of my research is about the amount of words in my notes that I have for like a regular episode. Yeah. So I was like, tell you what, this, this uh, is an important enough person that I'm going to be talking about and, and, and important enough to like queer history that I think he, uh, he has earned a two-parter. So. Okay, great. Awesome. I guess, I guess I'm starting. So Yeah. Let's kick this pig. All right, well, I don't have a cold open, but I'm going to start with a quote. It's one of my favorite quotes from a filmmaker ever. He says, quote, I've always considered movies evil. The day that cinema was invented was a black day for mankind. (laughs) And that quote comes from Kenneth Anger. Kenneth Anger is, you've mentioned him. I know you know at least a little bit about him. Yeah. He he might be known to weirdest thing uh, listeners uh, from earlier episodes where we talked about the Hollywood Babylon books. Mm-hmm. Um, I will not be talking about those today. I'm going to get to those next week. Okay. Um, but you know, Kenneth Anger, he was known for much more than than Hollywood Babylon. He's actually considered one of the the greatest independent avant-garde experimental filmmakers of all time and a real touchstone in like queer cinema history. Okay. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about the life and early work of Kenneth Anger, specifically okay. his short film Fireworks. Okay. Um, so my sources uh, this week, Wikipedia, as always. As always. An article from Esquire magazine uh, from May of this year. Um, oh, by the way, Ken Finger, he just died. Like a couple, he died on May 11th. He was 96 years old. Good for um, him. Yeah. I don't know. I don't <laughs> I know mean, a whole lot about his life yet. So I'm going to say good for say, him with a question mark. I would say good for him. I mean, the okay. dude, like, he lived a fucking life, man. Uh, but yeah, so there's been a lot of, like, retrospectives about him. And this is partly why I wanted to talk about him is that he, uh, yeah, he just passed away. So this um, article, The Extraordinary Life of Experimental Filmmaker Kenneth Anger, this was from May of this year, was basically an obituary to him, written by Mick Brown. An article from Art Forum called Close Up America Year Zero, Ara Astor Whale on Kenneth Anger's Fireworks. Mm. Um, an article from Brent on Film, uh, Raymond Rohauer, King of the Film Freebooters. That's from October 2018. A quick little uh, like blog post from IamNotAStalker.com mm. uh, about the silent <laughs> movie theater in LA. Okay. And then from the Underground Film Journal, Film Man's Obscenity Conviction Reversed. Um, and that's from 2017. So, okay. So Kenneth Anger. Uh, he was born as Kenneth Wilbur Engelmeyer on February 3rd, 1927 in Santa Monica, California. Uh, his dad, Wilbur, was an engineer at the Douglas Aircraft Company. Kenneth was the youngest of three children. He had an older sister, Jean, who was born in 1918, and then a brother, Robert, who was born in 1921. Kenneth did not get along with his family. 
it sounds like pretty much mostly across the board. He was, mm. his brother referred to him as bratty, quote unquote bratty. <laughs> he really had, it sounds like a pretty strained relationship with his father. Mm. He did, however, have a good uh, relationship with his grandmother, Bertha. He claimed that she had been a costumer during the silent film era and that she had all these connections in Hollywood. And so he credited her with his interest in like Hollywood gossip. He said that she used to tell him stories like bedtime stories about old Hollywood stars. And he says mm. that was his like equivalent of like the Grimm's fairy tales. Ah. And that's definitely going to come in when I talk about Hollywood Babylon, which comes okay. up in the next episode. She actually supported the entire family during the Great Depression. Wow. And then she moved into a house in Hollywood with a woman named Miss Diggy. I have not been able to find out anything about Miss Diggy or Bertha in her relationship with Miss Diggy. Uh-huh. Um, but one thing that can be said is that when Kenneth did come out of the closet a few years later, um, it was revealed to his family that he was gay. She was the one who supported him. So, you know, I don't know. But both she and Miss Diggy uh, encouraged all of his creative interests and definitely encouraged his like interest in old Hollywood and things like that. The Engelmeyers were, they were like the descendants of German immigrants mm-hmm. and they were devout Presbyterians. And very early, Kenneth was like, you know, the turd in the punch bowl and just like rejected Christianity when he was eight years old. Sure. His parents would try to make him go to Sunday school. And he was like, uh, he said, quote, I just told him I wanted to read the Sunday funnies and he would like stay home. <laughs> so not only did he reject Christianity, he actually started developing a really strong and lifelong interest in the occult. Okay. So when I say, you know, experimental filmmaker, Kenneth Thinker, you really should say, Filmmaker, author, and noted occultist, Kenneth Anger. Okay. So his first introduction to the occult came when he was a teenager. He began reading stuff like James George Fraser's The Golden Bough. And most importantly, he discovered the works of Aleister Crowley. I'm going to mention, because I kind of did my notes out of order for some reason, but the person who introduced him to Aleister Crowley is like lower in my notes, and I don't want to look at it now. Okay, great. He discovered Aleister Crowley. <laughs> okay. So The Golden Bough by uh, James George Fraser. It was, Fraser was an anthropologist and The Golden Bough is also called a, The Golden Bough, a study in comparative religion. And it was basically a wide ranging study of like world with mythology and religion. And Kenneth was just fascinated by that from a very young age. Mm-hmm. But then Aleister Crowley, I think everyone has, like, heard the name Aleister Crowley. Yeah. And, like, if you're a metal fan, you know that Ozzy Osbourne's like, Mr. Crowley. Like, that's obviously, <laughs> that's my uh, Ozzy Osbourne impression. Uh, well, you're then. welcome for that. Well, Crowley, he was an English mystic and an occultist. He was not, mm-hmm. as people tend to think, uh, he was not a Satanist. But he was deeply involved in mysticism and the occult. And he, he founded a religion called Thelema, and he called himself a prophet who was entrusted with guiding humanity into the Aeon of Horus. I'm not going to go... The Aeon of Horus? The Aeon of Horus. Are you... Okay. Okay. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple things about Thelema. One, I'm not going to go deeply into it. I have tried to read about Thelema over the years. Mm-hmm. It's real over my head, at least what I have read. Okay. And then also, I'm not like... I'm generally pretty happy to like make fun of weird shit, but I'm, I just don't know enough about it to make fun of it. <laughs> so I'm not going to be like making fun of Thelema, but it is, it is, uh, it still exists. There are still Thelemites today. Okay. Um, and Thelema is probably one of the most like influential occult, like modern occult traditions and that it had like deep influence on everything from like Scientology to Wicca. Oh, huh, okay. Yeah. Like people who were 
involved in Thelema would then like branch off and create these like different things. Mm. The connection of Scientology is really interesting and maybe I'll get into that someday. Okay. But anyway, so so Crowley, he invented this religion, Thelema. A couple, just a couple quick things about it is like a lot of the religion is revolves around the kind of the sacred power and the primal power of quote sex magic, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is why I think a lot of people are kind of like raise an eyebrow to Thelema <laughs> and okay. certainly did back in the day. Okay, it's also like its creed, which a lot of people have heard is "Do what you wilt shall be the whole of the law." Which kind of sounds like might makes right, do whatever you want, like anti-moralism. It's actually kind of more complicated than that because it's basically about like the idea of the will being like finding your purpose, like be true to your purpose. Okay. Crowley was often called the quote wickedest man in the world. He was and he was definitely considered by by the squares back in the day to be a Satanist. (laughs) (laughs) Inger said he was just misunderstood. And he said, quote, that's part of his aura, his halo, his attitude towards sex being sacred and having mystic qualities. It's not surprising he should have been controversial. He was really like a diabolical little boy. So, like I said, I'm not going to go much more deeply into Aleister Crowley because, uh, like, I, like I said, a lot of his ideas just kind of like are, are too abstract for me. Mm, okay, but you know, very influential. Uh, Kenneth Anger, he was introduced to Crowley's works by, and I keep it's still lower in my fucking notes. So, okay, some guy introduced him to Aleister Crowley's works. I was, I did this wrong in my notes, but through that. Um, he ended up meeting a woman named Marjorie Cameron. Marjorie Cameron was a widow of a was the widow of a rocket scientist and occultist named Jack Parsons. We're gonna put a pin in Jack Parsons because I am one hundred percent gonna do Jack Parsons on okay. the show at some point. I've been okay. uh, wanting to do Jack Parsons actually for a long time, and Jack Parsons is where kind of the connection to Scientology comes in. It's really interesting story, but. He was a rocket scientist, a very well-respected, well-known rocket scientist, and he was an occultist and a Crowley disciple. He died, and I won't get into how he died. Anyone who knows the Jack Parsons story knows it's a fucked up story. But Marjorie Cameron was his widow. Anger later said about her, he said, Marjorie was the only woman who, quote, without a doubt, was a genuine witch, in a good Mm. sense. She had what you would call, quote, powers. Ooh. So, yeah. Um, so he, he actually ended up living with her for two years and that's where he got really like intensely into studying Aleister Crowley's ideas. Now, this is when he was like in his teen year, like he was, he would have moved in with her, I think like 15, 16 years old. Wow. Okay. Very young. Just a couple more things about his like, uh, connection to Crowley. So in the 1950s, uh, Kenneth Inger actually moved to Scotland for a while and ended up moving into Aleister Crowley's former home. It's uh, an estate called Bolskine. It's on the shores of Loch Ness. Um, I remember seeing it. I remember it being pointed out, or I don't remember if the building was still there, but they pointed out like Aleister Crowley used to live up there. Oh, cool. Um, when I did the, the tour up there. Um, as soon as he moved into Bolskine, he went to the local like town council and he complained about the quote prostitute problem. The council was like, what? Uh, okay. So they sent an official out to like talk to him and the official looked around and was and told anger, sir, quote, there are no prostitutes. And anger replied, that is the problem. 
<laughs> I'm trying so, to tell you like that that is the issue. Get him in here. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he also went with Alfred Kinsey. I'm going to talk about his relationship to Alfred Kinsey here in a second. But he went with Alfred Kinsey to visit uh, Aleister Crowley's Abbey of Thelema, which is in Sicily. Okay, It's an old farmhouse that Aleister Crowley lived in. And I think it's where he developed a lot of like the tenets of Thelema. Okay. So Inger said, quote, it was owned by two brothers who hated each other. One was a communist and one was a fascist. So I had to pay an exorbitant amount of money to each to get access to the place. The locals who remembered Crowley living there and knew that Kenneth Anger was like poking around and was like interested in Alistair Crowley, they mm-hmm. didn't want him there. Like, because this is Sicily, it's like super Catholic. Right. Uh, they were not fans of Alistair Crowley when he was there. They did not want it to come back. So they actually left a curse, uh, a traditional Sicilian curse for Anger, which is they left the corpse of a mutilated cat on his doorstep come on so i'm like that's the good christians for you mm-hmm. anger spent that summer uh, he, he went there with alfred kinsey i don't think kinsey stayed with him the whole time but then he spent the summer like removing like someone had gone in and painted the inside of the house like whitewashed all the walls oh wow um so anger spent that entire summer like carefully removing the whitewash which revealed these huge erotic occult murals of alistair crowley <laughs> okay and he said uh so this is again from kenneth anger he said there was a door to the kitchen about eight feet tall and on that he painted the image of the scarlet woman nude rather outrageously holding a golden phallus and a cake the cake of light which was like his eucharist i photographed that i wish i'd taken away but it was just too complicated anger was a devotee of alistair Crowley essentially throughout his entire life his beliefs did evolve and kind of moderate over time. Later on, he said he was, he just called himself a pagan and he said, quote, it's just an appreciation of nature. It really has nothing to do with so-called black magic. Hmm. Um, but he did remain a member of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which okay. is essentially like a secret society that like Tholemite secret society that Crowley had created. And there's okay. lodges, there's OTO lodges all over the world. And uh, Kenneth Anker joined one of the OTO lodges and was a member of it throughout his life. He did say he wasn't, quote, doing magic circles all the time, although I have done it on occasion. So a couple other things about just early life of Kenneth Anger. He claims to have danced once with Shirley Temple when he was a kid. Um, this was at the Santa Monica Cotillion. Now, one thing about Kenneth Anger is he makes a lot of claims. yeah and if you know anything about hollywood babylon (laughs) which we'll talk about next time he says a lot of things yeah and a lot of it is like "Eh, maybe so yeah he claims he danced with shirley temple when he was a kid who knows Uh, he also claimed in his book hollywood babylon 2 he claimed that he actually played the changeling prince in the 1935 warner brothers version of midsummer's night's dream okay if you look at the pictures of the changeling prince next to like an adult picture of kenneth anger it does kind of look like him okay but then other sources including imdb claim that the changeling prince was played by a little girl named sheila brown Okay. So a guy named Bill Landis who wrote, and I would really like to get my hands on this biography. He wrote an, un, uh, an unauthorized bio of Kenneth Anger. It's unfortunately, like I looked online, it's like $100 for a cut. It's out of print. So. Oh, okay. But this Bill Landis, he insists that Kenneth Anger did in fact play The Changing Prince. He said, quote, it's definitely Anger as a child. Visually, he's immediately recognizable. I mean... Like I said, it kind of looks like him, but it's like okay. it's hard to like a little seven year old next to like adult Kenneth Anger with the Lucifer tattoo across his chest, which he was famous <laughs> for. Like it's a little hard to be like, yeah, that's 100% that guy. Yeah. So who knows? 
So the other like big influence on Kenneth Anger's life was actually sexologist Alfred Kinsey, who I mentioned. Mm, mm-hmm. So if anyone knows Alfred Kinsey or has heard of the Kinsey scale, Kinsey was, he was known for, he did these groundbreaking surveys of sexual behavior in the U.S. Um, these were detailed in the Kinsey reports, which were first published in 1948. Mm-hmm. Over the course of his entire career, he interviewed like 18,000 Americans. This was from everyday Americans to like famous people or famously like sexual people, like actors right. and stuff. And one of the people, of course, he interviewed was Kenneth Anger. Kenneth Anger and Alfred Kinsey actually met when Kinsey came to a screening of his movie Fireworks. I'm going to talk about Fireworks more. What is it? The Kinsey scale, does it go from one to six? I think it goes from one to six. And and basically the idea, like Kinsey was one of the first people who was like, sex isn't about, like you're not necessarily either gay or straight, man or woman. Like, right. Kinsey was one of the first people to explore the ideas that like sexuality falls on all these different spectrums. Right. It was a spectrum. I would just remember, there's a quote in something, a movie or something where someone's like, he's like Kenzie six gay. And, <laughs> and I was like, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's actually a really good movie about Alfred Kinsey. It uh, stars Liam Neeson. It came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in Boston when it came out so yeah there's also some stuff in there that you're like huh mm-hmm. weird yeah kinsey himself was not an uncomplicated person <laughs> right right i was actually just listening to a podcast uh with lizzie kaplan mm-hmm. and she was talking about the show masters of sex and how right. masters and johnson their studies were like how they differed from the kinsey right they were um, kind of which like is a, a whole like both of those studies are mm-hmm extraordinarily fascinating right yeah because masters and johnson they were like doing sort of i don't i didn't watch that show but they were kind of doing like similar things but it was like with with a somewhat different focus right they were they were also studying sex they were primarily where it seems like kenzie was sort of focused on sexuality Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like orientation and maybe gender and stuff Mm -hmm. masters and johnson were focused on physiology they wanted to know what happened to bodies during yeah that is pretty different yeah yeah i've always wanted to watch that show i've never watched it it's good yeah it's good it's i mean it's sexy this is lots of lots of lots of boning so much boning (laughs) so much Yeah. yeah Cool. Well, there, I don't remember there being like a ton of actual boning in the Kinsey movie, uh, but I think there was some. I feel Liam like Liam Neeson, Laura Linney, because there was well where they were doing everything together. Mm-hmm. I remember Peter Sarsgaard goes like full frontal at one point in that movie. Uh huh. So. And I feel like all three of them have sex in the movie. That Maybe is, not together, but like that is likely true. I don't I remember. So. I don't remember enough about it. I remember seeing it in Boston. Actually, this is a total sidebar. But the director is Bill Condon, who who did, and I've mentioned the movie a bunch of times on here. Um, he directed Gods and Monsters. Yeah, and he he did Kinsey too, and he actually presented pre-release screening of Kinsey. I can't remember if he did it at the university or it was like and somehow connected to the university film school so we got oh, to go watch it and do like a q a with him and that was pretty cool and i remember thinking it was a good movie and being really interested in like i'd never heard of kinsey before mm-hmm. well like i said so kinsey you know he was he was a university professor and he was like you know he was an academic but he and kenneth Anger became like super good friends 
because uh, he actually went to the screening of Inger's film Fireworks, which I'm going to talk about. Right. And he actually bought a print for his archives for $100. He was the first money that Kenneth Inger ever made oh, wow. as a filmmaker was selling a print pal for Kinsey. And then they became friends. And like Inger, who's already like into some stuff. Yeah. Dana was like showing Kinsey around. So here's a quote from the Esquire article. It says, Inger became Virgil to Kinsey's Dante, introducing him to LA's gay underworld. While Inger and numerous friends, among them playwright Tennessee Williams, contributed to Kinsey's survey. Mm. So yeah. And then <laughs> Inger said that as well as interviewing, oh, this is also from that article, so as well as interviewing subjects, Kinsey filmed various sexual activities in the attic of his room in Bloomington, Indiana, with Mrs. Kinsey downstairs preparing iced tea and persimmon pudding for volunteers. Inger was filmed there, he is quick to point out, alone, quote unquote. And so they asked, like, if he was masturbating. He says, mm-hmm. well, that's what they call it. I believe in what they were doing and I wasn't going to refuse. It was over in exactly 10 minutes. So there's there's film of that out there somewhere in the Kinsey archives. If, if you know, that's your thing. So if it's your thing. <laughs> Somebody has gone through and watched all of that and been mm-hmm. like, that's that's kind of that's kind of anger. anger. Yeah. I mean, if you've seen like Kenneth Inger's like released films, like the idea that there's a film of him out there masturbating is not particularly shocking. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's talk about Kenneth Inger as a filmmaker. So he started his first film in 1937 when he was just 10 years old. It was called Ferdinand the Bull and it was shot on leftover 16 millimeter film stock that his dad had used when they went on a trip to Yosemite National Park and he was like shooting home movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. The film depicts Kenneth Anger as the bull. And I guess he got two of his little school friends to pretend to be the matadors. It has never been shown publicly. Okay. In 1941, when he was 14, he made his quote first proper film. It was called Who Has Been Rocking My Dream Boat. Um, and it's basically just footage of children playing accompanied by popular songs by groups like the Ink Spots. And that's one thing you see in a lot of his movies is the kind of interrelationship between music and image. And like one of his, I'll talk more about it next week, but one of his famous films is one called, it's from the 60s. Uh, it's called Scorpio Rising. And it's like a bunch of bikers and it's very homoerotic and like you know bikers and like biker gear and the soundtrack is all like girl groups like the crystals and stuff like okay it's it's a great film it's one of my favorites of his so it sounds like he was kind of doing a similar thing with this who has been rocking my dream boat and then at 15 he made a short science fiction film called prisoner of mars it was heavily influenced by the Flash Gordon serials, which were popular at the time. But this is where Anger really started to work in some, because I think this was around when he was getting into Thelema and Crowley and stuff. So he started working in some of that imagery. He started working in elements from mythology. Like there's a character in there that's uh, supposed to be the Minotaur. He also created a homemade volcano in his backyard. And that was like his big special effect. Unfortunately, all these films are pretty much lost uh. because... Kenneth, at one point in the 60s, decided to burn all of those negatives. And I wasn't able to find out, like, why. I think it probably just, like, drunken anger or something. So, unfortunately, you can't see who has been rocking my dreamboat. Around this time, his family had moved over to Hollywood from Santa Monica. He was attending Beverly Hills High School. And while he was there, he met another student, a woman, uh, or at the time, girl, named Maxine Peterson. She had once been a stand-in for Shirley Temple. And one thing that is like a common thread with Kenneth Inger is just his fascination with old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Like he was never part of like the Hollywood scene. You know, he was mm-hmm. this outre, like independent, avant-garde kind of rebel 
level filmmaker, um, but he was always just fascinated by Hollywood and Hollywood culture and stuff. So I think the fact that she had been a stand-in for Shirley Temple, who he claims to have danced with when he was a kid, he was just like, he wanted her in a movie. So he asked her to be in his next film project. It was another short film. It was called Escape Episode. Um, and this was his first officially like occult film. They shot it in a quote spooky old castle somewhere in Hollywood, and then he later screened it at the Coronet Theater in Los Angeles. We're going to talk a lot more about the Coronet Theater, okay? Because that's very important part of the, particularly the story of fireworks. Okay. And it was around this time, so he was probably like fifteen, sixteen. Um, he became friends with another filmmaker, a guy named Curtis Harrington. So Harrington was also an experimental filmmaker, but he would go on to make like horror and sci-fi movies. He did a bunch of movies for Roger Corman, like Queen of Blood in 1966. Mm. Then he directed like uh, TV movies based on the works of Robert Block, who obviously wrote Psycho. So he did like Cat Creature in 1973 and then The Dead Don't Die in 1975. (laughs) Beautiful. But at the time that he and Kenneth met, they were both doing like these avant-garde experimental films. So it was Curtis. This is the guy I kept trying to look through my notes. I put it in the wrong place. But this is the guy who introduced him to Alistair Crowley's book. Okay. And okay. actually introduced him to um, Marjorie Cameron. Harrington and Inger would then go on to form something called the Creative Film Associates, which was just like a little collective to distribute and screen experimental and underground films. Like they were particularly fascinated by the works of Maya Darren, who's like considered one of the great experimental filmmakers. So anyone in Albuquerque, if you know, like the basement films guys who like they screen stuff down at the Guild all the time. uh Sounds like it was kind of like that kind of thing. Like a group of film enthusiasts who had all these prints of underground films and they would get together and show them and exhibit them. I mean, one of the big places that they exhibited them was this Coronet Theater. Okay, so let's talk about him, his sexuality, and then his movie fireworks. So around the same time, in his mid-teens, this is around when he realized that he was gay. Now, at this time, homosexual acts were illegal across the United States. Right, right, right. Sorry, like what year is this? Um, I don't know an exact year, but I'm going to say like early to mid 1940s. Okay. Because it was like when he was in his mid teens, he was born okay. in 27. So, okay. So like being gay was very underground. Right. And uh, he, as a teenager, it sounds like became part of LA's underground gay subculture. In the mid-40s, so he probably would have been like 16, 17 years old, he was arrested in a, quote, homosexual entrapment. And this is what outed him to his family. Mm. So he already had a pretty bad relationship with everyone in his family, had a particularly bad relationship with his father. So he moved out. I think he was like 15 or 16, he moved out. And he moved into an apartment that his grandmother, Bertha, paid for. So she, like I said, she was the one who like kept, you know, kind of kept uh, a relationship with him. It was at this time that he ditched his last name. He stopped being Kenneth Engelmeyer and became Kenneth Anger. So maybe understandable why he picked that last name. Yeah. So at the same time, I think he was still in high school, but he started attending classes at UCLA. He started, he was studying film. And then that's when he was like introduced to like psychedelics. Like he started like taking peyote and stuff. And then while he was studying film at UCLA, he decided he was like, I want to make a short film that explicitly is about my sexuality. 
Mm. Now he wasn't necessarily the first to do this. Like there were other, like there was a guy named Willard Moss, but he ended up being kind of the most explicit with fireworks. Okay, and it, and he became early on, his, and he has continued to be held up as one of the like touchstones of queer cinema, and it's really largely because of fireworks. Mm, okay, so fireworks was created in 1947. Now I've read several places that he shot it when he was 17, which would not be 1947. No. Because uh, he was born in 1927. So right. I don't know exact dates, but supposedly it was made, maybe it was finished in 1947, mm-hmm. and he released it in 1948. So this Art Forum article, it says that the film is, quote, widely considered the Ur film of American queer cinema. It was at least partly inspired by an incident that he witnessed during the Zoot Suit riots. Um, that was in 1943. If we, Great story. We've touched on the Zoot Suit. We haven't done like an article on, or a, an actual story on that. No, and the Zoot, suit, the Zoot Suit riots are fucking fascinating. It's a fascinating yeah. story. We ought, to, we ought to hold on to that for like a future episode because I would yeah. love to hear that story. Yeah. So during the riots, he watched a bunch of sailors in white uniforms chase down a group of Mexican men and attack them. Yeah. Mexican boys. It should be noted that it was Mexican boys. Well. Yeah, I saw it said men in the article, but yeah, that makes sense. And the fact is, like, Anger himself also would have been a boy. Yeah. So this led to recurring dreams of being attacked by these sailors at night. But the thing is, like, they were nightmares, but they were also, he, like, eroticized this experience and his. Interesting. Okay. So we'll get into that uh, as we get into the movie. So he shot fireworks in his parents' Beverly Hills home. Over a single weekend, I think I read it was like three days. Where were his parents? They were out of town. (laughs) Most kids are throwing parties. And he's like, guys, I'm going to shoot a gay AF film while my parents are out of town. sailors and all. I mean, I'm going to show you parts of the movie and... Or at least a part of the movie. Beautiful. And yeah, this was shot in his parents' house. And like he was like 17 years old. Uh, One scene was shot in a public bathroom at a park in Olive Hill, California. So I'm going to read. It's a 14-minute movie. It's surreal and, like, loosely narrative. It has a lot of very homoerotic imagery, some militaristic imagery, particularly with the sailors. Fair amount of, like, BDSM-type imagery and some specific occult imagery. It was just, like, all of the Kenneth Anger things being put in one place. This is the Wikipedia synopsis of the film. Just just so you can, because I don't want to show the whole thing. It's 14 minutes. Um, it opens with an image of a sailor holding a lifeless body. A sleeping man wakes up in bed and gets dressed. The dreamer, who's played by Kenneth Anger himself, walks through a door labeled Gents to find himself in a bar. He admires the body of a muscular sailor and offers his cigarette, only for the sailor to attack him. The sailor uses a flaming bundle of sticks to light the dreamer cigarette. The smoking is interrupted by a group of sailors who chase him and pin him to the ground. They beat the dreamer and reach into his chest to find a ticking meter inside of him. White liquid pours down his body. A sailor unbuttons the crotch of his pants to reveal a Roman candle, which shoots sparks into the air. The dreamer appears with a Christmas tree as a headdress, moving toward a fireplace in which several photographs of the opening shot are burning. The dreamer then appears asleep in bed next to a man whose head is radiating light. Hmm. So like I said, I'm not going to show you the whole thing, but I do want to show, and you can kind of narrate for the audience, like what you're looking at here. (laughs) I wonder if people love this stuff or if they i mean i hope it know, inspires them to go and watch the whole thing but that's that's my idea at least what i'm looking at right now is a guy with two fingers up his nose right so this is when he's being attacked 
Mm. by the sailors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, hey, yeah, yeah, we see some sailors, clearly. Ooh, this is, like, hard to narrate. Yeah. So they're beating. He's on the ground. He's, like, uh-huh. spitting up blood. Yep. He looks like he's naked. It does. The The sailors that- are kind of looming over him. Mm-hmm. Oh, now the sailor's got a chain. So being beaten with the chain. Yeah. And that's Kenneth Anger? That's Kenneth Anger. Okay. On the ground. Okay. He's bleeding all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> Something just got smashed. It's white. Okay, there's a torso. I don't even know what that was. It was a broken bottle. Oh. So this is they're cutting into him. So you see, like, all the meat and stuff. Yeah, and all the viscera. Oh, and there's the little... Yep, the little TikTok timer. Yep. There's like a, his chin and profile. And then, yep, white stuff is dripping onto him. Mm-hmm. Now keep in mind, this was shot... This is like the 1940s. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, I would not call this subtle. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're like, like it. Lo- it looks like milk, but it is like pouring onto his face. Mm-hmm. And now it's now it's a shot of his like torso, and it's like dripping down his torso. Right. Just rivulets of white. Yeah. Was... And then a urinal. Yeah. So now we're back in the bathroom. Oh, naked. He's naked on the floor of the bathroom. Uh huh. And there's a sign that says gents inside the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> Just so we know. Another sailor mm-hmm. looking, I don't know, something. This is the big moment. Okay. That's, yep. He's got a big firework in, in his scratch. pants. It's, yeah, it's coming out of his fly. Shooting sparks. Shooting sparks. There's the Christmas tree. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, you get the idea. Yes, I do. So, like, just, I mean, it's hard to judge without seeing the whole movie, but just, like, what's your, like, basic reaction? I I think it's that. It's that I think I need to see the entire thing because uh, it's all, like, a little out of context. It's hella gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Real gay. real real gay Mm -hmm. yeah but even i mean for him making i mean if he was if he was between the ages of 17 and 20 Mm -hmm. when he made this it's still an impressive you know like there's clearly a point of view Mm -hmm. in the filmmaking yeah i think that's absolutely true and i think i'm just i remember watching that in film school and just having it in my head that this movie came out like two years after my mom was born yeah and like just knowing i mean we've talked about this like if i had been in high school and made this movie in the 90s i might have gotten beat up yeah so to like make this in the 40s as a high school student that's pretty intense i'll post some i'll post some like some stills 
uh, in social yeah. media. Yeah, because it's clearly like it's clearly relying heavily on imagery and mm-hmm. It's also very clearly gay, like so gay. <laughs> so gay. Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, this is typically true of Kim Finger films. It's juxtaposition of imagery and music. There's not, this is true of like, I would say most or much experimental film. Mm-hmm. There's not like a lot of dialogue because it's really oh, not, yeah. you know, it's not about like a literal narrative. Right. Okay. So his synopsis of the film was, he said it it was about, quote, a dissatisfied dreamer awakes, goes out in the night seeking a light, and is drawn through the needle's eye. A dream of a dream, he returns to bed less empty than before. Um, And then he said, this flick is all I have to say about being 17, the United States Navy, American Christmas, and the 4th of July. Yeah. (laughs) Like, yep. a lot of Does have all those things in it. (laughs) Yep, yep. (laughs) It sure did. Yep. It sure did. <laughs> so from so the art forum article is interesting because it really makes this I mean it's really like it kind of tears and when I say tears into fireworks, I mean not in a negative way. Like it takes it apart. It really examines fireworks. Okay. And it puts it in the context of like sexual revolution, civil rights, gay rights, racial issues. And so they say, quote, made in the immediate aftermath of World War II, just as the United States was entering the Cold War in which it imagined itself to be the policeman of world democracy, fireworks shocked its audiences with violent depictions of sexual brutality and gang rape Mm. by military personnel. Although the modern sexual revolution in the civil rights and gay rights movements were years, if not decades away, fireworks explored the pleasures and perils of same-sex desire and interracial identification in a culture in which homosexuals and racial minorities were demonized and persecuted. Hmm. Um, And then it goes on, it says, In an America perpetually at war with enemies real and phantasmagoric, anger's subversive eroticization of politics confronts the sadism of imperial power with the masochism of the queer subject. It is arguably the most political wet dream ever felt. And I think that's like a pretty, it's pretty good. I mean, like, that's a pretty good breakdown. And I think one thing that is very true about it is that you could say it is a rape fantasy. Mm. And I think just, again, thinking about a kid in 1940s who was gay, Mm -hmm. just so, like, not only, like, expressing his sexuality on screen, Mm-hmm. in this very overt way mm-hmm. but also like getting into the dangerous aspects of it and like the you know exploring the idea of like pleasure and pain and you know fantasizing about being violated and how right there's definitely both, some yeah there's some kink in there there's some kink it's like you know it's about the eroticization of this but also being terrified of it right so like i said anger himself he plays the dreamer he and again you gotta keep this in mind like he he always said a lot of things that people later would be like uh, maybe not he claimed that he convinced some of his us ucla classmates who were also active navy servicemen to come play essentially themselves in the movie and that they used their actual navy uniforms in the film but another friend of his a guy named ed Earl, was like no they were just they were students that he was taking film classes with but they were just students and that they rented the costumes <laughs> they were just sailor. i don't okay so i don't know how i, I don't know like what's the word i'm looking for I don't know how long this like rule has been in place, but I was told by the wife of somebody who worked for the military that you are not allowed to have an actual uniform Mm -hmm. on stage or screen. 
Mm-hmm. Like you have, it has to be a made replica of. Right. So if that's true, those guys would have gotten in big trouble, especially. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why I mean, being like in that particular. If it's not true, I think that's probably why he liked the story because it makes it seem more transgressive. Right. Like, ooh, yeah. Like one thing I think about kind of thinker is he was really good at like mythologizing himself, mythologizing Hollywood. Right. You know, and yeah. And, Just looking at, and like I said, we'll get to it next time, but looking at Hollywood Babylon and how just blatantly was making shit up those books. (laughs) It's like almost everything he says you do kind of have to take with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, I've heard that too. About I know that when I've had police uniforms in movies, Mm -hmm. the real sticklers about badges, you cannot use them. Yeah, and that makes, that to me makes sense because like you can't be wandering around with a badge that could be, you know, ostensibly used Right. For like nefarious reasons. Right. The, my understanding of the military thing was kind of that same thing that it was like, Mm. and it might even go so far as like, you have to be careful about how you show military uniforms. Mm. Yeah. And I found all of this out when we were doing the Nutcracker back in the day. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know much about that, but it's not surprising. Yeah. It's not surprising to me at all. Also uh, in the production of the film, he, he actually like physically scratched the film stock for two different scenes so one and i think you might have seen a quick flash of it is when he's naked in the bathroom there's a shot of his genitals and he scratched those out and the reason why is he was worried that if he sold prints through the mail he'd get in trouble for like distributing obscenity okay but then for simple creative reasons he actually in the shots at the end when he wakes up in bed next to the other young man who's got the like corona around his head Mm -hmm. he actually scratched that corona like the halo of light into the Mm. film stock this is something else that would like over time has become like a very common technique of experimental filmmakers is actually physically manipulating the film stock itself right uh, let's see. He used Ottorino Respighi's Pines of Rome as the score. Okay. And then, like I said, you know, aside from being like hella gay, it, it does get into his like thelemic occult beliefs. There's a lot in there about like death and rebirth. It depicts uh, his version of a quote ritual of self initiation. Mm. Um, and the, the light that the dreamer is looking for, which he finds at the end with the man in bed with him uh is a symbol for lucifer which in his mind is the light ring and he famously had a tattoo later across his chest of just the word lucifer but in his mind lucifer the actual literal meaning of the name lucifer is bringer of light huh. and you could look at lucifer as like a, a prometheus type figure you know punished by god for revealing the truth to humans right so that's how he sees lucifer so that's again this is why people are like kind of anger was a satanist alistair crowley was a satanist but it's like way more complicated than that yeah there's also a lot of like biblical imagery in the film Mm. but it's all kind of done through this homoerotic lens and it quote conflates masochistic desire with redemptive suffering so again from the art form article it says Quote, in the history of American cinema, dream structures serve a variety of purposes, whether as strategic attempts to avoid censorship or as ways of introducing surreal content into more standard narrative. Dreams often function as sites where characters and audiences alike can explore forbidden intimacies. These explorations can be deadly or ecstatic. 
and Kenneth Anger's fireworks, they're both. And then it also goes on to say, quote, in its brutal staging of sexual violation, fireworks erotically transforms historical trauma into Anger's own metaphorical birth and baptism. And then Anger said himself about the sailors, he said that they're quote, kind of a sex symbol on one level, but on another level, there's a great deal of ambivalence and hostility and fear in the image. Mm. Um, and I think this all has to go back to this thing he witnessed of them beating up the Mexican boys. Right. Okay. So he screened the film privately a few times for friends, and then he gave it a public premiere at the Coronet Theater. That's where he met Alfred Kinsey, and Alfred okay. Kinsey bought a print. He, again, take it with a grain of salt. Anger claimed that a lot of celebrities were at the screening. He said that James Whale, who's the director of Frankenstein, was there. Okay. I don't think any of that is confirmed. And then after it screened, a New York-based film society called Cinema 16 acquired the rights to distribute the movie. And it kind of like his career as an avant-garde filmmaker was like off to the races. Yeah. Um, but now let's talk about a guy named Raymond Rohauer. Okay. One copy of the film was later obtained by a, quote, nefarious film collector. Okay. <laughs> and failed filmmaker um, named Raymond Rohauer. Rohauer actually worked at the Coronet Theater. He had moved to L.A. in 1942. He started off working as a grave digger. <laughs> and then he later became active at the Coronet as a film exhibitor. So like I said, he had made his own experimental five-reel 16-millimeter uh, experimental film called Whirlpool. And the only thing I could find about it was a quote that said, the film was not well-received. <laughs> so... Whatever that. Oh, means. no. Oh, okay. <laughs> but so he became a collector and he began acquiring films at a rapid pace. And he, and he built a library of films that was like 700 movies mm-hmm. over the course of his quote unquote career. He pretty much copied everything that ever was screened at the coronet and put it in his collection. And this was all super duper illegal. Mm-hmm. He, he was like violating copyright left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, he wouldn't even like, you know, like all these prints would be watermarked to say like who actually owned it he wouldn't bother to remove the watermarks he was just like whatever (laughs) and apparently a lot of them were like he just made really shitty copies of a lot of things Mm. he also like bought up the rights to a lot of films especially european films that would not otherwise have ever been released in the u.s Hmm. he was known as like a real nasty bully he would like bully people into giving him copies of movies or signing rights to their own films oh wow he also formed i saw a quote somewhere said he formed quote paris friendships with silent era directors and stars and a lot of people say he exploited them to get copies of their movies and to get the rights to their films and stuff but one thing you can say about him is he actually is responsible for preserving a lot of that old work Mm -hmm. um he's particularly credited for preserving a lot of the early work of stan laurel and buster keaton wow and so this is from that brent on film article it says many of keaton's 35 millimeter prints came into rohauer's hands after the actor james mason discovered them in the garage of keaton's former house and notified rohauer at the coronet so a film archivist named william k everson he described the coronet theater itself he said it was a quote bizarre combination of art house film society and exploitation cinema and the article goes on to say production code censorship was still at its peak and by operating as a private film society rohauer could legally show revivals european imports and experimental films that were all forbidden usually for their sexual content Hmm. to normal commercial exhibition while he posed as a crusading force for artistic expression however Rohauer filled his notorious fold-out mailing programs with salacious or sensationalist promises that the films themselves, often of genuine merit, failed to supply. So he called himself a collector. Other people said he was a pirate. 
second. The Brent on Film article says, I prefer the term freebooter since it suggests that certain cavalier charm that Rohauer possessed. Pirates were interested only in loot, plunder, and the wealth it bought. Rohauer was far more concerned with the extension of power that loot could buy. Hmm. So, like, just as an example of how he was kind of a dick, he made a lot of enemies at his time at the Coronet. One of them was with a guy named John Hampton, who ran a small theater that still, at least the building's still there. It was close to where I lived in LA. It's the silent Mm -hmm. movie theater on Fairfax. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a small theater devoted to screening old Hollywood classics, Mm. particularly silent era classics. It became a very popular place. A lot of uh, movie stars like Charlie Chaplin and Clara Bow, Mary Pickford, they would like actually go hang out there. Mm. He would also acquire old prints and then he would lovingly restore. So whereas like Rohauer would just like shoot off cheapo copies of things. Right. Hampton would like in his own bathroom, he had an apartment above the movie theater. And in his own bathroom, he would like lovingly restore these prints mm. um, and like redevelop them onto film. He restored a version of Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera, and it's largely still considered to be the best version of it in existence. Oh, wow. It took over eight prints and more than five years for him to complete the restoration. So like Rohauer, Hampton didn't really have the rights to these movies, but like the studios were like kind of turning a blind eye. He was seen as like pretty much harmless. Yeah. Rohauer, however, saw him as competition. So kept suing him (laughs) and saying, no, you can't screen that movie. I have the rights to that movie, even if he didn't have the rights to it. And he just like sued this guy over and over and over. (laughs) fortunately the silent movie theater did survive john hampton he did ultimately die of cancer i think in the 80s and i think Mm. it was probably because of the chemicals he was using in the restorations Mm. but like i said the silent movie theater like when i lived in la it was still operating i don't know if it's owned by the same family or what but right still there you can find it on fairfax boulevard so back to rohauer he had somehow acquired an illegal copy of fireworks okay and anger kept trying to get it back from him rohauer kept saying go fuck yourself and then in 1957 rohauer screened the movie at the coronet along with another short experimental film called voices and after the screening he was immediately arrested on obscenity charges <laughs> um the reason for the charge was said to be the gay content in fireworks mm-hmm. um as well as supposedly in this movie voices there was a nude woman shown for like a few frames okay scene obscene throw him in prison the prosecutor was a guy named william c duran much of the case did not actually revolve around the content of the movie but more about the theater itself and it's largely gay clientele Mm. the coronet was denounced as being a quote site of gay community formation which i don't know to me that sounds cool but i guess this was considered bad at the time yeah they didn't want everybody spreading their gay all over (laughs) right (laughs) but he was but like this william duran he really like in his case that he was making for the jury really was just like obsessed with the firecracker and the pant shot Mm. and he kept referring to it as the quote penis scene even though there's no actual penis no and Rohauer was convicted um he was sentenced to three years of probation and was levied a $250 fine Mm. but two years later the appellate department of superior court reversed the conviction this opinion was written by a judge named Frank G. Swain and he said that the films quote merely discussed sexual problems and that the showing of a disrobed woman was not in itself obscene (laughs) so after this reversal Rohauer 
moved back to New York. He became the film curator of the Huntington Hartford Gallery of Modern Art in New York City. He was doing a lot of the same kind of shady shit in terms of like trying to get rights to things. He kept showing films around the country. And like I said, even with his like shitty third rate copies of stuff, he is credited for largely keeping the legacy of silent film stars like Buster Keaton and Max Sennett alive. Okay. Um, his 700 film collection later became part of the Cohen Film Collection in 2011. Huh. Okay, so to wrap things up, to go back to fireworks and just kind of this movie's legacy. So 1949, Kenneth Inger submitted the film to the Festival du Film Maudet in Biarritz, which I believe is outside of Paris. Okay. Somewhere around Paris. His own personal hero was a filmmaker named Jean Cocteau. I mean, in Santa Fe, we have the Jean Cocteau Theater. There we go. Very, very just like, considered one of the great filmmakers of all time. Probably most known for his version of Beauty and the Beast. He also would work in a lot of occult and symbolic mythological imagery into his films. And I think this was partly why Inger was so taken with his work. So at this festival, uh, Jean Cocteau awarded Fireworks the Poetic Film Prize. And then he actually himself wrote Inger a personal letter congratulating him on the film, saying how much he admired it. And then he ultimately persuaded Inger to move to Paris for a while. I'll talk some about that next time. Um, the film continued to play at film festivals all around Europe. It was much better received in Europe than it was in the U.S., probably mm-hmm. not surprisingly. But after seeing the film at the Coronet, Tennessee Williams called it, quote, the most exciting use of cinema I have ever seen. Huh. In 1969, uh, Inger remade the movie as Invocation of My Demon Brother. This film has a soundtrack composed by Mick Jagger, and it features Mick Jagger as himself. It also features Anton LaVey as a satanic priest, and uh, Manson family member Bobby Boussoulet as Lucifer. And I will talk about Invocation of My Demon Brother some uh, next time. As of now, Fireworks has been added to the Anthology Film Archives' Essential Cinema Repertory Collection. And so that's the first part of the story of queer icon and filmmaker Kenneth Anger. And stay tuned for next episode. I'll get into his his later work. You can see why, like, I wanted to break it up. There's, like, a lot to his story. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Yikes. Okay. All right. Should we keep on trucking? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. Amazing. So, yeah, my story is not about pride, Um, but today I'm going to talk to you about how Hans Christian Andersen was a disaster bisexual dumpster fire. Okay. There we go. go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so sources for this are of course, Wikipedia. The story was brought to my attention through two Twitter threads. The first one was by, uh, someone, their handle is at T Berry blue. And the other one is at Dana Schwartz. Uh, three Z's, and then some articles from LitHub, The Rumpus, Yahoo News, and The Guardian. Okay. Okay. So Hans Christian Andersen was born on April 2nd, 1805 in Odense, Denmark. Mm-hmm. Um, his father, uh, who claimed to be related to nobility, had an elementary school education, and his mother was an illiterate washwoman. Mm. Both of his parents... So Hans' father introduced him to literature by reading Arabian Nights to him. But his mother, even though she couldn't read, apparently she would just spin these like fantastical yarns Mm. to little Hans when he was a child. Uh, Hans' father died in 1816 and his mother remarried, I think, like maybe two years later. Hans got a basic education and had to work to support himself as a child. He worked as an apprentice to a weaver, to 
a tailor, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. At 14, Hans moved to Copenhagen to work as an actor and he got some decent work mostly because apparently he had like a stunning soprano voice mm. until his voice changed. <laughs> as, then, as, as happens. As happens. And then that was the end of that. Allegedly, a colleague told Hans that he considered Hans a poet. And Hans was like, well, then I guess I'm a motherfucking poet then. Hans was sent to a grammar school and his tuition was subsidized in part by King Frederick VI. Mm. Hans later said that his time spent at school was some of the darkest times of his life. He lived with the schoolmaster Mm. who regularly abused Hans to improve his character. And the faculty also all discouraged him from writing. Yeah. So that sounds yeah, not great. Hans would go on to write a lot. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote several like installments of fairy tales that included Thumbelina, the princess and the pea, the emperor's new clothes and mm. the little mermaid. Right. The first two installments received unenthusiastic reviews. <laughs> Critics thought Hans's style was too chatty and informal and they disliked the immorality of the stories. Mm. They would have preferred that his fairy tales educate readers rather than amuse them so even back then they're trying to whitewash all this shit yeah very much so yeah well no the reverse like they they were like this should be more like there should be more of a moral to the story Mm. than less so hans took some time like to be like okay well i guess i'll cut it out with the fairy tales and he went and he wrote some novels uh he wrote travelogues he's he wrote Mm. some plays And when he returned to writing fairy tales around 1838, he actually gained a ton of acclaim and his work was celebrated throughout Europe and many royal families became patrons of his work. Yeah. So he had sort of like a resurgence in that. Let's talk about Hans Christian Andersen as a person. Okay. I was going to say, you like, you, you went through the career pretty quick. So I'm guessing. Yeah. Once we get into it, there's going to be some wrinkles. Yeah. So Soren Kierkegaard said that Anderson could be characterized as, quote, a possibility of a personality mm. wrapped up in such a web of arbitrary moods and moving through an elegiac duodecimal scale of almost echoless <laughs> dying tones, just as easily roused as subdued, who, in order to become a personality, needs strong life development. End quote. That's a sick fucking burn. Yeah. And that's not even the worst one we're going to have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Anderson is sort of etched into our collective psyches as this like whimsical teller of tales, right? right? Like if you know anything about any of his stories, they are the, they are like quintessential fairy tales. Well, I always hear like people always talk about like Hans Christian Andersen did like the nice fairy tales and then the Brothers Grimm did the dark fairy tales. And the thing is, is like they did, like Mm -hmm. the Brothers Grimm did very dark ones because they were very openly dark. Mm -hmm. Anderson's work is... Like, you're like, oh, there's a little story about a princess and a pea, or here's a story about a little mermaid. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the end, or you, like, you sit with them for a while, and you're like, what the fuck? That was fucked up. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was effed. So, you know, we imagine him as this sort of, like, you know, very, mm-hmm. very, like, yeah, this teller of tales, right? right. But it seems that the truth was more, like, ungainly. Mm. Anderson was socially awkward. Okay. He had 
passionate, unrequited longings for men and women. Mm. He casually defied gender norms. He was prickly and sensitive and weird. (laughs) Yeah, this is from the Lit Hub, one of the Lit Hub articles. The world needs this Anderson, the romantic, lonely striver, effeminate and shy, defender of the humanities and friend of the marginalized. Mm. And so like that's at the like at the time people were like, you are weird. (laughs) (laughs) And now we see it as like, oh, man, like maybe he just like was around at the wrong time. Like mm-hmm. if he'd been around today, we might have. We could maybe create some space for. Yeah, 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 exactly. You should also know that Anderson kept detailed diaries though. And as I will get to later, his diaries are unreliable. Okay. <laughs> okay. In his diaries, he details a flirtation he had as a child with a young Jewish girl named Sarah to mm. win her over. He told her that he secretly came from nobility. You'll remember his father had said the same thing to, to young sure. Hans. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm noble. I'm going to go <laughs> live in a castle and you should totally come work in my castle as a milkmaid. <laughs> and Sarah was like, that's like, that's some like, Real negging. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and like early negging. Yeah. yeah. And from what I could find, this is like peak Anderson, like the clumsy <laughs> flirting, the fairy tale embellishments. Mm-hmm. Like Anderson would retain these traits into adulthood. A recent mm. biographer said of Anderson that he was, quote, keenly sensitive, entirely egotistical, innocently vain, the center of life, interest, concern, and meaning to himself, perfectly unconscious that there existed another standard, an outer circle, taking it for granted that everywhere he was to be first and all. Mm. So it's like, like at equal points maddening, but also the way that he presented it, it was like, I love this like innocently vain, right? Like he right. just did, he had no clue that he wasn't supposed to act like I that. I feel like, and I mean, obviously we're not going to name names here publicly, but I feel like you and I know people like that. You I know? mean, <laughs> I'm sure we all know people <laughs> like that. Everybody's like, yeah. mm. but I mean, there's some specific people where it's just like people that can kind of drive you nuts because they're self-centered and they, everything revolves around them, but you can also tell there's not like malice there. Yeah. Like, yeah. They just genuinely can't see kind of past their own nose. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this whole story makes me laugh because (laughs) I feel like we've mentioned it on the podcast before that I, like when you and I first started talking about a podcast, I put out a thing on, I tweeted that I was like, Mm -hmm. Scotty and I are thinking about starting a podcast called talking shit about people we know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And this is like kind of the thing with this story is that it's just some, it's just some like garbage fire tea about Hans Christian Andersen. (laughs) Like there's no big moral or anything to it. It's just one of the, it's like, in looking at these two threads that I saw, I was just like, oh my God. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of people who knew him just like, let me tell you what I really think of this. Yeah. Let me tell, let me tell you, let me tell you like the inside story on this. Mm. Um, So English writer, Elizabeth Rigby described him as a long, thin, fleshless, boneless man bending and wriggling (laughs) like a lizard with a lantern jawed cadaverous appearance i mean they really knew how to insult back then oh yeah we need to work harder i think (laughs) yeah like just 
a read, right? Right. As a kid, Anderson was frequently mistaken for a girl Mm. and he described himself as womanly or quote, woman soft. Hmm. Uh, he was called effeminate by a teacher who he never forgave. And I think, I can't remember what story it was, but there's a villain in one of his stories that is like, who I think like suffers a terrible fate. And that was Mm. allegedly this teacher who had called Mm. him effeminate. Anderson was also prone to, like I said before, powerful romantic attachments that were never returned with quite the same gusto. Mm -hmm. He wrote long, florid letters to his crushes, but he was hamstringed by his shyness and his, quote, inability to pass as normal. And it really seems, it really seems like when they're talking about this, they don't mean normal as in like his sexuality. They mean normal as in the guy was awkward. Yeah. Like he was just awkward. Yeah. Nowadays, a lot of people categorize Anderson as bisexual and possibly asexual. Mm -hmm. He never married. Um, He seems to have no interest in marrying. And he wrote in his journals about his refusal to have sexual relations with people. I mean, it almost reminds me of H.P. Lovecraft without the racism, maybe. Yeah. In the sense that like people say the same thing about Lovecraft where he was like, you, you know, maybe gay or asexual but it also could just be he was like super awkward right like a big old nerd you know right and this is this is an interesting thing right because clearly he has big romantic feelings for people Mm -hmm. but seems to be uninterested in consummating those in love with the idea more than the reality And I think with like, you know, because as we know now, there are people who are asexual and there are people who are aromantic Mm -hmm. and there can be overlap, but there doesn't have to be. And it seemed, yeah, it seems like Anderson was very much a romantic, but for whatever reason, wasn't interested in the actual like biological act of the thing. Yeah, could 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 be asexual. 100%. Let's also remember that we can only speculate about how Anderson might have identified himself if sure. the language to do so had existed at his time. Right. Okay, so let's get into the mess. In 1847, the summer of 1847, Anderson met Charles Dickens at a party. Dickens at this time was already Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. right? And Anderson immediately fangirled all over Dickens and called him, quote, the greatest writer of our time. Mm -hmm. They had a nice little conversation at this party, after which Anderson wrote his friends that Dickens had 100% lived up to his hopes. Mm -hmm. Dickens, in turn, sent Anderson a little package with some of his books and a personal note. Anderson took this as a sign that they were friends and proceeded to write Dickens letters for the next nine years. Wow. Yes. In 1856, parasocial relationship, Dickens, who apparently had spent the last near decade sort of trying to, in a very British way, be like, please stop writing me. Right. So 1856 rolls around. Dickens is like super annoyed that he's like dealing with these endless letters and decided Mm -hmm. to deal with them in the way that polite society dictated, which was to tell Anderson that if he was ever in the area, he should stop by for a visit. Mm. Uh Uh-oh. (laughs) And Anderson was like, oh, my God, I totally have a trip planned to England. Can I stay with you? It'll be for like two weeks tops. So in June of 1857, Anderson shows up at Gads Hill, which is Dickens country estate, Mm -hmm. saying, quote, my visit is for you alone. Above all, always leave me a small corner of your heart. I mean, that's a little intense. 
<laughs> I saw one article that was like, depending on how you were to frame this, this could either be like something from like a sweeping romance or something from a horror movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anderson proceeded to spend five of the most awkward weeks ever at Dickens estate. Five weeks. Five weeks. Yes. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Again, remember that our literary soft boy is not good at picking up on social cues <laughs> and that he always needed to be the center of attention. When he arrived, he demanded that one of Dickens' sons give him his daily shave as this was the custom for hosting male guests in Denmark. Mm -hmm. Dickens was like, that's weird. <laughs> I'm going to make you an appointment at the local barbers instead. <laughs> yeah. I saw like one article that tried to position that as Anderson being like a pedophile. Mm. I will say that it was Dickens' oldest son. Mm -hmm. And that's all that there was as far as that went. I mean... Who knows? But that sure seems like that's that's reading between a lot of lines. To it's a there. bit of a leap. It's yeah. a bit of a leap, especially if there's not anything. If there is other stuff, absolutely. Like, well, if, I mean, if that was a genuine like custom in Denmark, it may not have seemed weird to him to ask, you know? Yeah. So there we go. Mm -hmm. One night during a dinner, Dickens extended his arm to escort one of the ladies into the dining room and Anderson swooped in to grab Dickens' extended arm and waltzed arm in arm with Dickens into the dining room. <laughs> I, I just see Dickens being like, so weird Trying so hard to be polite yes uh while at gads hill anderson got word that his latest book was getting bad reviews and he proceeded to throw himself down on the lawn and cry hysterically for hours <laughs> to be fair anderson showed up at the absolute worst time for charles dickens dickens mm -hmm. serialized little dorrit was getting bad reviews mm. um he was trying to leave his wife for the teenager he was having an affair Ooh, with yeah um, and he was also acting in a play and like, mm. you know how busy I get when I'm right. doing a show. So like, I get it. There wasn't just a lot of time. So you're when saying it, when you're doing a show, don't come try to stay with you for five weeks. For five and weeks. Throw myself yeah. crying under your lawn. Okay. Got it. I mean, I don't have a lawn. I have Zara escaping. So good luck. <laughs> when Anderson finally left, Dickens pinned a note on the room Anderson stayed in that read Hans Anderson slept in this room for five weeks, which seemed to the family ages and ages was in all caps. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, well, this story is like a little wacky. The story that led Anderson to writing The Little Mermaid is bananas okay. and this is one of these things that it's just like oh god because again i don't feel like hans christian anderson was a bad human being i think just he was creating these literal fairy tales in and mm -hmm. in, in his mind and right. i think just wanted the outside to match the inside you know okay so as we've already seen anderson had crushes on a lot of people and he had big feelings about all of the things which included having big feelings when those big feelings were not returned sure this is from the twitter thread from at terry blue it says anderson pretty much could have considered himself at the center of a tragic romance but the person he was tragically being forced apart from changed 
constantly. <laughs> he was kind of like a fuck boy, but instead of fucking everybody, he would lurk in the doorway, staring longingly at everybody when everyone thought they were casual acquaintances at best. Oof. Yes. <laughs> So one of these people was Edward Collin. Uh, he was the son of one of Anderson's patrons in Copenhagen. And they actually spent, like, they grew up together in the same house. Anderson lived with the Collins when he was, like, growing up. Mm -hmm. Anderson wrote Colin the following, quote, I languish for you as a pretty, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> I languish for you as for a pretty Calabrian wench. My sentiments for you are those of a woman. The femininity of my nature and or friendship must remain a mystery. I mean, again, like it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Okay. <laughs> Colin was pretty committed to the ladies. So he was like <laughs> super confused about yeah. why, like, you know, by, by this friend that he lived with who kept sneaking into his room and leaving roses under his pillow. Like he was like, mm. I don't like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand it. I mean, he's just like, Hans is just the ultimate tryhard. Like, Yes. So Anderson, for his part, was sure that he and Colin were in love and that it was just those damned societal restraints mm -hmm. and all of its pressures that were keeping them apart. Yeah. When Colin got engaged, Anderson wrote to Colin's fiance and told her to end things with Colin oh. and Colin was like, I don't understand. Like, why are, like, why are you doing this? Like we're yeah. friends. Like, why are you trying to like ruin my life? So he wrote Anderson a letter stating that his feelings were hurt and he was confused because he's always regarded Anderson as a friend. And Anderson was like, what do you mean friend? <laughs> Apparently, these letters have all been archived online, so you can go and see them. But he he was like, what? Friend? And Colin is like, I don't, what is <laughs> no. happening? Yeah. Colin had called Anderson, quote, worthy in his letter. And Anderson went off the rails because oh. he thought Colin was being passive aggressive. Mm. When Colin finally married his fiance, Anderson wrote The Little Mermaid and mailed it to him. Mm. Okay. Oh. Colin wrote about Anderson in his own memoir, quote, I found myself unable to respond to this love and this caused the author much suffering. So a lot of people think that The Little Mermaid is a story about Anderson feeling outside of his society because mm -hmm. of his queerness. And like, yes, it is. But it is also a direct like <laughs> calling out. It is a, it is a tantrum mm -hmm. about his feelings for his friend not being reciprocated where mm. anderson implies that the friend colin symbolically kills anderson at the end uh, yeah i mean like i gotta admit like as you're telling this like i'm, I'm feeling a lot of empathy for Hans. same like poor guy just can't can't same. can't get it together i'm also like real glad that i was never friends with him because <laughs> this seems right like, oof. it's a lot it's yeah. a it's a it's a lot at t berry blue supposes that 
yes, it was a story about struggling with unrequited feelings for another man, but that Anderson wrote and sent that story to Colin to make him feel bad. And I think that's where we get into it, right? Is that if he had just written The Little Mermaid and had like put it into the world and was like, Mm -hmm. these are my feelings. It's the fact that it was basic, like he basically like added Edward Colin and was like, this is about you. (laughs) Yeah. Like an 18th century subtweet. Yeah. Yes. He vague booked about <laughs> his feelings and then tagged Edward Cullen. Yeah. And at that point, it's not vague booking anymore. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was very, you've killed me, like, you know, cut out my right. heart, turn me into sea foam. And Colin is like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know like what to do with with this so anderson went on to have like many many crushes on and Mm -hmm. like many many tantrums but he was able to have some successful relationships like the one that he had with grand duke carl alexander he wrote about the two of them saying quote the hereditary grand duke walked arm in arm with me across the courtyard of the castle to my room kissed me lovingly, asked me to always love him, though he was just an ordinary person, asked me to stay with him this winter. I fell asleep with a melancholy, happy feeling that I was the guest of this strange prince at his castle and loved by him. It is Mm. like a fairy tale. Mm. That's sweet. Yeah. And I think, again, the thing, you know, the part of like having empathy is that like this is clearly somebody who... It just really wants it. Yeah, just really wanted this like, this fairy tale romance, right? right? He also had some kind of a relationship with a Danish dancer uh, named Harold Scharf, who would go on to inspire Anderson's The Snowman. Mm. Uh, Anderson's journals imply that the relationship was sexual. Okay. They dined alone together very frequently, and Scharf gave Anderson a silver toothbrush for his 57th birthday. Mm. The two carried on for a while Apparently it went like they would even like sort of canoodle in Mm -hmm. public to the point where people were like, stop. (laughs) And they were like society, you know, (laughs) but eventually Scharf like ghosted Anderson Mm. in 1863. Anderson wrote, quote, Scharf has not visited me in eight days with him. It is over. End quote, (laughs) which is also just like (laughs) eight days. Yeah. over yeah he hasn't texted me in eight days so i guess it's (laughs) over it's over (laughs) anderson and this is like you know where the bi part comes into it anderson also fell in love with many unattainable women throughout Mm -hmm. the years like these were women that were like above his station and all that stuff there are some people who wonder if he had this habit of falling in love with women who were unattainable as a way of sort of like protecting himself. Like maybe he wasn't actually so bi, maybe he was much more like just gay, Mm -hmm. but this was like a way to do it. I have a little bit of a hard time like believing that only because like he writes in his own diaries so openly about this like flowery love that he has for men yeah it just seems like i mean he is just a guy like what is it you call it a spray and pray like a little bit yeah and then but you know just like a guy who's just like has so much love that it just goes everywhere 
it know, just went and he wants absolutely it so everywhere. And yes. Like, yeah. In 1872, at the age of 67, Anderson fell out of his bed and was pretty seriously injured. Mm. He never really recovered from those injuries, Mm. and he also soon started showing signs of liver cancer. He died on August 4th, 1875, and right before his death, he met with a composer about music for his funeral, saying, quote, most of the people who will walk after me will be children, so make the beat keep time with little steps. Mm. yeah he is buried in the collins family plot in copenhagen he shared and i think actually might still shares a plot with edward and edward's wife Hmm. yeah i mean i hope that that was their choice because otherwise it's like through eternity they're like just. i mean i think it was because like i mean if they were nobility i think it would well, were they? Hmm. Well, also, hmm, like, was a patron, probably. Was it their choice? Was it a family choice? Like, yeah, who knows? But I think, like, at a certain point, the graves were moved and, like, they were all moved. Okay. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like this guy, like, genuinely cared about him, was just like, I think, I don't did. feel that way about you. Hmm. I think so. I yeah. think that that's what it was, that it was like, I, I have great affection for you, just but, like not, right. not in that way. At the time of his death, Anderson was internationally revered, and he was actually paid an annual stipend by the crown for being a national treasure. Oh. Yeah. yeah. There are several museums in his honor. His fairy tales have been translated into more than 125 languages. His works have inspired ballets, plays, countless movies. And they, quote, have become culturally embedded in the West's collective consciousness, readily accessible to children, but presenting lessons of virtue and resilience in the face of adversity for mature readers as well. Mm. One of the things that I forgot to put in here, but that was so was so funny to me is that, like I mentioned, he wrote all of these diaries, right, right. about all of this stuff and all of these feelings and all of these like connections and blah, blah, blah that he had with these people. But scholars now are like, we don't know because he was so bad at social cues <laughs> that like, we don't know what is real in this and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Well, like anytime he's, I mean, even with this Grand Duke or whatever, who mm-hmm. like walked into his room and kissed him, like where we get in corroborated accounts from the Grand Duke being like, no, yeah, I was super into him. Like, and I feel like that with that one in particular, yes, there was. Okay. Like there was something that it was like, oh no, yeah, they were totally like. Without that, I'm not sure I would trust Hans to be. I know the he source. he is an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna just wrap this up. I know this is a short story, but I'm gonna wrap it up by saying Hans Christian Andersen built a world of fairy tales for his readers and for himself to create and play out the sweeping love stories that he had in his heart and that couldn't, it seems, ever be played out in real life. Um, mm. And that is the somewhat sad story of the disaster bisexual dumpster <laughs> fire that is Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah. <laughs> Poor buddy. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, I mean, we don't need to cancel him. It's not like a Me Too story. It's just a, like, <laughs> oh, man, oh, buddy. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Like, and what's interesting about it too, is that it doesn't seem like he was like, you know, nice guy TM. Like, it doesn't seem like he was like that kind of a thing. It just Mm -hmm. felt like he was very much like, and it seems like he felt those feelings for everybody. It doesn't Mm -hmm. like nowhere in any of the stuff that I saw, did it seem like he had feelings for Dickens? 
it's just that like he just wanted to like love everybody really well, hard and everybody was like that's not the way that we do things yeah well and it's like i know this is like discussions i've had with you again about people who will remain nameless but like the idea of the meta narrative you know some people they just live like they're the main character in their own stories and they're just weaving this tapestry of a narrative and it's all like romantic lost loves and stuff yeah like sometimes it's just like i don't know just like go about your business and like it seems like that's kind of what he was doing where he you know he was very self-involved and just everything was big like big emotions right nothing was like a, like yeah okay well that didn't work out it was like everything was a catastrophe and like right and like you know, that's tiring to be around he, yeah and it's interesting because like i wonder if hans christian anderson was alive today if he is somebody who would like, maybe we would have found out that he was like a little neurodivergent, right? That he was yeah. like, you know, somewhere that, and that maybe that's why he had so much trouble with with mm-hmm. social situations I and mean, social not cues. Understanding social cues to the extent that he is, it sounds like there was something going on. Like, right? And you the know, thing I don't want to try and diagnose the guy, but like, right. And the thing that I want to be careful about here is that there is like absolutely room for that to be true. There's also absolutely room for people who just don't learn those things and right. they aren't, you know, they well, and- they don't have those things going on with them. And that's always the hard thing is that it's just like, how did we all learn this stuff mm-hmm. and you didn't? And there isn't well, something like. It'd be interesting to know like what the family dynamic was too because you know that that's where you learned the social cues and was the whole family like the parents not good at (laughs) imparting that stuff to him well and i mean if you look back at you know he had a father and the father got this from his father of Mm -hmm. being like you're from nobility and you come from all this stuff and like you have this like so it's immediately like planting the seed you're special you're special right 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 like planting the seeds of this like sweeping special background and then also having a mother who is illiterate Mm -hmm. and clearly lower class but who also tells these grand sweeping stories Mm -hmm. to her little boy and then that little boy gets sent away well and then this relationship with his headmaster that he lived with sounds like right i mean that's you know that can create all sorts of trauma induced behaviors right yeah absolutely So. so there's so much stuff in there and i do like i do think that it is it is an interesting story and you know funny to sort of like you know people might be like why did you do the story for pride and the thing is is that part of it is Pride is amazing and wonderful mm-hmm. and absolutely to be celebrated. And a lot of the stories surrounding are very, they're hard. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're rough stories, you know, right. it's the same thing. I think that we've come across when we're trying to do things for black history month and stuff is that it's like, mm-hmm. man, these stories are like, I mean, that's a little bit why I wanted to do Kenneth Anger, you know, not just cause he died recently, but also like, I mean, I think Kenneth Anger was pretty much like happy to be who he was for pretty much all his life. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, I mean, I'm sure he had, you know, traumas and things, but you know, he kind of, he kind of owned his persona and from yeah. a very young age at a time when it was like very difficult to do that. You know? Right. Yeah. And I think that this is just a little bit more about like, 
just some like queer history mm-hmm. as opposed to like stories about like liberation for right. queer people. Right. right. So hope you all enjoyed that. Um, no, I was, I've heard a little bit about, I think, I think I've actually talked to you because I think you've talked about this a little bit. Yeah. Him being like sort of this kind of dumpster fire. Yeah. It'd be really interesting to see someone do a biopic of him and like kind of get into that aspect of his persona. Yeah. Because like the kind of half living in a fantasy world, I think he could do a lot with that. Yeah. What was interesting, there was somebody, I think it was from the Guardian article that was one of my sources, which was actually like very, very little because I believe it, I believe it was that article that was written by somebody who was doing a play about Mm -hmm. Anderson and was one of those things where I was like, <laughs> because it was stuff that he was like, you know, I just see so much like commonalities between myself and, and Hans Christian Anderson, like our, you know, Ooh, like his, like his, well, and it was like, I'll have to send it to you. Cause it, it was things <laughs> like, it was like, you know, here's somebody who like loved really hard. And like, I also have like a very big sexual appetite. And I was like that. Okay. Slow your <laughs> roll. Like <laughs> one I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Two, nothing in that. Like you were trying to tie some, I want to, like you're trying to tie some threads that I don't think need to be All tied. Right. And right. two, we don't need to hear it. Like we don't Ew. need to hear about how your voracious sexual appetite right. is like your inspiration for doing this like <laughs> bio show about Hans Christian Anderson, you weirdo. Yeah. I mean, um, that's another version of being a tryhard, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because there is a play called Peter and Wendy. No, 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 no. Peter and Alice mm-hmm. that is, you know, sort of going along with like, there's this like fantasy aspect to it and like the real people. And that is a play, which apparently this like actually happened. I think the boy who inspired Peter Pan, who inspired mm-hmm. uh, J.M. Barry to write, yeah. yeah, to write Peter Pan, and the girl who inspired Lewis Carroll to write Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. It's about a like a meeting that they had. Interesting. Uh huh. And I can't remember if the meeting actually happened or if they were just like kind of alive at the same time. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But within that, it's like it's like a two person play, but it's actually I think like a five or seven person play, and there are all of these other actors who come in as like all of the other characters oh, like Lewis Carroll, cool. J.M. Barry, I think Captain Hook, like all of this cool. stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's fucking depressing because um, mm. Alice, I mean, she ended up dying in like abject poverty. Like she Ooh, didn't right. have, she didn't have money for like to heat her home. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I believe the boy who inspired Peter I think he, I think he ended his own life. Mm. So it's like, it's a, it's, it's, it's not, like, ugh. not a super fun time. Yeah. But a very good play nonetheless. Yeah. All right, everybody. Those are our, uh, those are our <laughs> queer stories for pride. Month. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back next time with Scotty's part two. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, something fun and weird and exciting from me as well. Yeah. So until then stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.